Welcome to episode 67 of the Contra Fabulist podcast. I'm Audrey Waters. And I'm Ken Lane. And apologies once again that we're still working from a very tiny studio apartment um, in New York and we don't have our normal recording setup, so I'm not able to either edit out um, background noise really very effectively or um, boost one or other of our audio. Well, we'll just have to do with what we can. Um, we have a we have a uh, um, apartment supposedly coming down the line that will have mo- more than one bedroom, and um, and hopefully it'll get better. Yeah, hopefully. Um, so another week full of. Uh, Natural disasters. Yeah. We, it was my first week of class. Yeah, your first week of class. I had a substitute teacher. Uh, let's, let's do that. Let's start with that. What's, uh, who is your substitute teacher? <laughs> so I'm required as part of the Spencer um, Fellowship to take a class um, called Evidence and Inference um, on Wednesdays. And then I've also elected to sit in on a class on opinion writing that's taught by uh, Jelani Cobb. Um, But he was not able to make it to the first day of class, so he sent a friend to cover. Um, A writer, maybe you've heard of him, (laughs) called Ta-Nehisi Coates. Wow. Yeah, that's a pretty good way to start off school. I was, um, yeah, I was sort of blown away. I didn't... I kind of sat there, like, starry-eyed. Like, I actually left afterwards thinking, like, I don't know if I blinked the whole time. My eyes, I had, like, my eyes felt um, like I had, like, uh, whatever, light damage from, like, being wide-eyed the the whole time. But it was pretty incredible. We just got, we spent about an hour and a half, a very small seminar, just getting to talk to him about, ask him questions about his, um, how he works, um, what's changed in his life with the success that he's had with his um, book um, and, and whatnot. Um, he had a piece out this week. So he talked a little bit about how he works through ideas. And it was, it was for me, it was actually really, um, it, it, it was actually really comforting because we talked, spent a lot of time, you know, thinking about when, when I consider what I do, opinion writing largely, although it's, it's based on, a lot of research and some reporting, mostly what I do is opinion writing. And the pressure of coming up with lots of opinions, any like or the pressure of turning your opinions into articles is something that I find really difficult. And it was good to hear him say that like actually that's probably a bad thing. And the longer you sit with an idea, the longer you work through an idea, the more that you gather different sort of examples and layers of an idea, the better the piece will be. So that was reassuring. Nice. It's a, I don't know, quite an experience that you get get exposed to here at the school. So I'm pretty excited. I'm happy to be in New York. Yeah, I'm happy to be in New York. Um, we're eating a lot of bagels. Yeah, we're eating a lot of bagels. <laughs> and um, elsewhere in the country, though, it seems pretty crazy. Back home on the West Coast, there's, there's forest fires. And in the Southeast, um, is getting pummeled by hurricane after hurricane. So... I'm pretty happy to be here. Yeah, and I think that, um, <coughs> excuse me, 
see, that's the kind of thing I could edit out. Um, that's, I think that at some point maybe we could talk in a subsequent um, episode about some of the technology, the technology angles to this relief work. Um, one of the things I think that, um, maybe we'll actually, re we could reverse the order of the stories too. One of the things that's really fascinating slash horrifying to watch are the ways in which hashtag fake news um, is being shared about all of these incidents, right? So earlier, just um, earlier this evening, I saw the White House communications director? No, not the White House communication. The White House social media director, Stan Scarvino, uh, tweet out a, an image saying that he was sort of reporting, telling the president, the vice president, exactly what's going on. And he shared a video um, of an airport that he claimed was Miami. <laughs> and the Miami International Airport responded back like, uh, that's actually not Miami. So thinking about the ways in which the president of the United States, if he's taking his messages, inf getting information from his social media advisor, is getting incorrect information. But I think, you know, seeing these, seeing both images that are wrong, seeing images that are mislabeled from other disasters, um, advice that's wrong and dangerously wrong, you know, people having to issue warnings in Florida telling people not to shoot their guns into the hurricane because somehow people had convinced themselves that that was going to keep the hurricane away. I think that there are a lot of, there's a lot of um, misinformation that seems to be amplified by social media. But at the same time, thinking about, you know, what what is social media um lock for, for the ability for, you know, municipalities to be able to spread information. Um, and like, you know, what are the, what are the trade-offs here when, um, again, when you think about a, a city's or county's inability to respond um, and people turning, you know, because 911 is overloaded, for example, people turning to Twitter, sort of crowd for, crowdsource help. Well, the whole democratization of information and crowdsourcing, and I think technologists really like to focus on the good that can come of this. But the problem is, is I think they pretty heavily um, and blindly focus on the good that can come from, you know, the democratization of information and, and crowdsourcing of details and images and all of this. But I think they really underestimated uh, that there's quite a few people out there who are in the business of spreading uh, disinformation, misinformation, and we heard Rush Limbaugh, uh, Rush Limbaugh this week, and and he's Ann probably Coulter one and, of the most. I mean, I would say Rush Limbaugh, despite the rise of Fox News, his Rush Limbaugh's radio show is probably one of the most. He's probably one of the most influential conservative voices in in the United States, and so for him to insist that Hurricane Irma was a liberal conspiracy, um, that Big Water big water was behind all of these stories trying to drive people to convince people that they needed to stock up on bottled water as a conspiracy, um, and urging people that, you know, try, in order to sort of argue that climate change isn't real, um, urging people to ignore warnings um, about, about an impending 
an impending natural disaster. And then, of course, he himself is wealthy enough and connected enough that he can evacuate, right? Whereas um, the working poor, um, people with disabilities, people for a variety of reasons, whether they have pets or um, whether they're ill, um, whether they're addicts, whether they're, they don't have documentation, whether they might have arrest warrants, are left to sort of fend for themselves in, in, and be in harm's way. Yeah, the... And I, I mean, and to be clear, like, you know, Rush Limbaugh is not, he is not social media. This is quote-unquote old media. This is traditional media that is still really invested, like, like you're saying, like, invested in fake news. Yeah, they've, I mean, that, that's definitely not anything new. Truck drivers and, and conservatives have been uh, tuned into that for, for, for many years. But I think the, this, this movement didn't have as many, uh, didn't have as strong of legs as it does now with Facebook and with Twitter and what we've seen from the election, kind of building around the election and the ability to, to, to spread information and not just spread information via, you know, AM radio that that is is fairly ubiquitous but you know this is this is Twitter and Facebook technology power technology amplified um and and kind of tech bro amplified news getting out there and and then when you have that coupled with the the targeting power of these platforms because of advertising that you can specifically target these people who you know are going to buy into this message and really keep them pumped up and amp- amped up and and believing in not just you know climate change is a hoax but you know reinforcing that with every wave and pushing and these are the types of people who are going to never back down and it's just you know Facebook and Twitter are still you know even though they're they seem to be doing stuff after the election they're not really uh actually doing much to slow uh, the spread of fake news and, and, and this messages that are getting out there. So the news, one of the stories um, that broke this week was um, the New York Times wrote about um, the fact that Facebook is now having long insisted that it really had nothing to do with, well at first it was sort of we have nothing to do with how the election turned out. And later it was like, well, we, had, we definitely had nothing to do with the Russians. Um, and this week the news came out that, um, that they've, they disclosed that at least $100,000 in political advertising was purchased um, by, by, a Russian, um, by a Russian organization seemingly to interfere in the election. And again, these weren't campaign ads directly. Um, but they were ads around uh, quote-unquote hot-button, quote-unquote divisive issues. And it raises a lot of questions, I think, about the ways in which political advertising works on new media like Facebook. Of course, Facebook wants to insist, and this perhaps underscores why, Facebook wants to insist that the rules governing media don't gov- don't it don't apply to it right facebook says that we're a technology platform we're not a news organization but most americans the pew the pew uh, research center was out with a poll this week or with a study this week and most americans get their news from facebook 
Yeah, I mean, I, I know a number of people on my Facebook. This is where they get all of their information. And they have no idea how the Facebook advertising works, the Facebook targeting. And this, you know, we're going to see Facebook uh, has, I guess, uh, is is working with the DOJ and, and I guess Mueller's team actually uh has has act, has requested some of this information, so may I'm guessing we're going to see more than a hundred thousand dollars in one organization having bought ads because this is how they, when we heard you know the various stories about how fake news was seeded throughout the election, all of them start with buying a certain amount of ad spend. That's how you seed these stories, and by targeting the right people, these very prolific bubble folks they share the hell out of these things and then that kind of jump starts if it's the right meme and the right narrative and it you know hillary's emails or you know some conspiracy theory pizzagate all of these things and it just it takes on a life of its own so i i think we're going to start seeing that there was actually a quite a bit more ad spend on this fueling this and then i guess twitter as well has stepped up voluntarily and started cooperating and sharing information as well well i want to i want to sort of expand on a, on a couple of pieces about this, because I think when we think traditionally about political advertising, whether it's putting an ad on the television or buying an ad in a newspaper, um, the, um, we, it's expensive, right? But, I mean, typically when campaigns raise money, a lot of that money um, goes towards advertising. And in fact, many people said that one of the strengths that Hillary Clinton had, as opposed to Donald Trump, is she had a huge, she had a huge war chest for her her campaign, much larger than Trump's, and she was spending a lot of money on advertising. And everyone sort of was was sort of amazed that Trump didn't seem to be doing a lot of big buy, big ad ad buys um, on on TV. Uh, but you know, buying an ad on prime in prime time on, say, NBC, one of the major networks, or even on CNN or, uh, or on Fox, is in the hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars, for one ad that everyone who watches it sees the same thing. So a hundred, when, I say, when, when you hear $100,000 in Facebook ads, perhaps it doesn't sound like a lot of money. But I can speak to the kind of ads, and I think anyone who runs a Facebook page gets these um, messages from Facebook in which they say, for $2, we can run an ad that reaches 5,000 people or 10,000 people. They, they run, <laughs> like good A-B testers in the tech space, they run a lot of sort of um, a deals by you to see if you're interested in purchasing ads. But for really just two, five, ten dollars, you can reach thousands and thousands and thousands of people, right? And so $100,000 worth of Facebook ads isn't one ad that reaches, you know, everyone who's tuned in to watch um, whatever sitcom is playing on a, on a Tuesday night on NBC. Um, the, the, the reach is actually potentially much, much greater. And then, of course, if you can convince people to like a site, right, if part of your ad is, is to convince people to like something, then you've sort of captured them again to be able to push more content into their feed. So it has, it, it has a larger reach to it. And like you said, it's really important to recognize that 
Again, whereas people buy ads on television because they know there's a target demographic that they want to reach, right? So CNN viewers or Fox viewers are a particular age, a particular income that advertisers, uh, pharmaceutical companies mostly, find to be a good audience, a worthwhile audience to pay that money for. But on Facebook, you can really drill down to on an incredibly fine-tuned level into targeting specific people. And if you if you're if you're matching your targeting with other information, right, that you know you can actually um, target a fair, fairly specific people who your campaign is going after. And in the case of, again, in the case of sort of Russia's Russian propaganda, it isn't simply about finding people who are amenable to a tr message about Trump. It's about finding people who are susceptible to information that is really divisive and rage-inducing. So these might not be Republican voters or Trump voters, but this is sort of a, you're looking for disaffected people, perhaps, who were active on Facebook and spreading, and sort of will be uh, diligent about also spreading this information. And again, you think about how close the votes were. I mean, you know, Trump likes to brag about his win, but he lost the popular vote. And then the states that were key states for him, he only won by like 10,000 votes. So $100,000, for example, spent with this sort of highly targeted advertising in a state like Wisconsin, in a state like Michigan, in a state like Pennsylvania, it could have been a, I mean, it could have been a huge factor. And I think it's a huge factor in some of the divisions that are still being fomented today around Clinton and Bernie Sanders. Yeah, it's not, I mean, this isn't just, hey, convince the right 10,000 people to, to vote, vote for, for Trump. Trump. Right. This was, hey, how do we... we, we sow dissent. We sow dissent and get, you know, Bernie bros who, you know, really hated Hillary and wouldn't vote for Hillary to not go out and vote for Hillary. And then I saw right, quite not a show bit... Up. Yeah. I saw quite a bit of, you know, RT retweets and things among folks who were... Seemingly, you know, on the left side of things, even beyond, you know, the Bernie bros and people, you know, sowing anti-government sentiment when it comes to, uh, you know, vaccinations and, and other things that, you know, it's this is how you get people, you know, divided, as you said, and and really pumped up and, and either voting the right way the other way or not voting at all. Right. Checking it, out of, you know, checking checking out out. Democracy, of democratic institutions, checking out of public democratic institutions altogether, which is very much what I think America is suffering from, is a loss of the ability to engage in public civic discourse. Well, and, and you know, Trump supporters love to say, well, you know, half, half America, you know, doesn't feel like you. They, they want him in office. No, actually... It was it was about a quarter of America that felt that way, and I would say you know a big slice of that was was you know their uh, you know 
sexism, racism, other things were kind of stoked and fanned. And then, you know, there was a good, you know, close to 50% of the country that didn't get out and wasn't really active because they were sufficiently turned off on, you know, voting for Hillary or sufficiently turned off on voting for Trump. And when we saw, you know, Hillary's emails being talked about in the debates and this stuff was all over uh, social media and being really fanned to the point where you, you have folks who who went to D.C. to, you know, with a gun into the whole Pizzagate thing, believing that, you know, this is the power of social media and this is what what um, these ads are well, buying. I mean, this is the power of, of advertising, right? Advertising is, at its core, psychological manipulation, right? There is, you know, I mean, f- famously... Bernays, the person who the the person who invented the modern notion of marketing, is I believe the nephew of Sigmund Freud, right? Like we like psychology, the development of psychology and the development of advertising go hand in hand. That's very much about sort of convincing you, convincing people to do things at a at a psychological level. Um, but so I think what's important about the political ads on Facebook, though, is that they're different from all of the other rules that we have around political ads. I know, the horns are awesome. Um, the political ads, for example, on television, say, paid for by X and X campaign, right? At the end, they say, my name's Bernie Sanders, and I approved of this message. You have to sh- demonstrate, you can't actually say on an ad on CNN libelous information, right? There are, there are rules, right? But, and these, the, the stuff, um, and again, like, they're the same, the same ads target a whole swath of people, and they, there's a, there's not a longevity to them. Sometimes they'll, they won't run but once. But Facebook ads are so ephemeral, and there's no, there's no, on the, the political ads, there's nothing actually in the fine print that says this ad was paid for by Vladimir Putin, right? Yeah. I, I mean, in fact, I mean, that's illegal. Um, but the, this ad is, I mean, there's nothing that even, I mean, I, actually, I imagine that the ads that are paid for by the campaign probably do have this, but this other murkier level has no transparency to that. And transparency has become, I think, a really important part of the way in which we think about, we think about advertising working. Um, but then we also, you know, so, I mean, I think the transparency is, um, and, the, and what's happening with people's personal data around this, you know. I mean, Facebook, Facebook and Google, we've talked about this so many times, they're advertising companies. And in they, many ways. They have a lot of data on But us. what does it mean? What I mean, it's, I think it's, you know, uh, my friend uh, Siva Vaidanathan has a, uh, had an op-ed in uh, the New York Times this week. Like, there's a difference between being marketed a toothbrush and, you know, because, and, and being, being delivered on Facebook with these sorts of ad, like political advertising. Right, like, and having your data, you know, having your data mined for toothbrush ads, it still sucks, right? I and I think that it's still problematic. But having your data mined for psychological manipulation around 
one of the fundamental institutions in a democratic society, voting is is something else entirely. Right? That that's a that's a different that's a different thing altogether. And you know, I mean, congratulations, Mark Zuckerberg, for really coming up with a, with a platform that's moved a long ways towards dis- destroying democracy. Well, having the data to to sell, uh, you know, since you use toothbrushes, it doesn't really work, but toothbrushes to a hip, young, uh, you know, fairly well-to-do black audience, say, um, in the Northeast, versus targeting someone based upon race because you want them to vote a certain way. I mean, these mechanisms for targeting that, that, that the Facebook and the Twitters and, this, and Google yeah, and these I mean, ad networks think yeah. are genius the are of tools ra- of I mean, the race. Question of, the question of race is so, uh, you know, is so profoundly significant here. Not just, I mean, because it's actually not simply targeting black people. It's actually targeting the white people, like that's the that's the population. I mean, black folks. <laughs> I mean, they weren't like they turned out for Hillary, right? Like the people, the people who didn't are are white folks. I mean, and this like back to you know back to Ta-Nehisi Coates' brilliant piece this week in the Atlantic about Trump as the first white president. I mean, the this is this isn't simply about sort of. Rate like racial racial profiling in, in the way in which I think we often think of racial profiling, which is identify a person of color and then punish them. This is actually sort of like this weird converse inverse, which is identify like disaffected white people and then like pump them full of white supremacist rhetoric. Again, like you know, where where has this resurgence of anger and violence. I mean, it's never not been part of, it's, it's part of the American fabric, but it's really been unleashed and I think um, fueled by being able to go to the advertising dashboard on Facebook and being able to actually fairly, with a, with a fairly high degree of accuracy, promote a message of white supremacy to young men between the ages of, young white men between the ages of 15 and 25. Yeah. That's different than selling a toothbrush. Yeah, well, and the amount of data they have behind this and the, the ability to hide it behind the information sharing, so the ad targeting and all this, the way that you can say, hey, I can put this article out there that is, is completely racist, it has a... Has a you know, an image of, of uh, um, the Confederate flag. It's got a topic that says something. And then you can put that out there and then you can follow up and say, well, I want to advertise and boost something against those people who like that. So you're not sitting there, you know, directly saying, I want to find all the racist people on Facebook. But you have these it's psychological profiles right, it's not hard, that are exactly. these wrappers for this information. And this is just one piece. Right, I mean, you could triangulate this. Do you like, are you, um, you know, again, age, gender, um, do you like Breitbart? Yeah, I mean, based upon domains, which domains you, you, Where do you share, live? which ones you click. And so the obfuscation of the card that goes with the obfuscation of the ad buy, these things just work magically together. And then you have all the data behind, and this kind of moves into the other big story from the week is is uh, 
you know, the amount of data that Google and Facebook and Twitter has on is, is pretty amazing. But almost everything tech right now that's being done is to gather some data points about you and sell that. And one of the biggest data brokers out there, Experian, got... Equifax. Equifax, excuse me. Yeah. I know. <laughs> Might as well be. Well, yeah. yeah. Um, Equifax. Why did I say Experian? Because they were they had a data breach recently. Too. Yeah. Okay. But uh, uh, yeah, my ease and my um, getting them crossed. But they they had a a, a, a breach uh, this week that well it it happened a quite quite a while ago actually but we just found out about it this week and uh, you know uh, it was an API for the win that was part of uh, the culprit um, of why this was was able to get hacked but it was. You know, pretty classic what I see in the space pretty regularly is that it was a pretty old bug. Um, it was it had to do with Java struts and then a um, which is a, a way of exposing data, backend data from a database and making it available. In this case, I believe it was to a form, but it used an API and they just hadn't updated or applied any of these old uh, fixes because they don't care. I mean, most of the organizations I know really don't care about security. They just do only what they have to do to get by because they're so greedily focused on, you know, in in, in uh, Equifax's, uh, you know, they're, they're providing credit scores and targeting, but really what their main game has become is all about data brokering. So not just saying, hey, you're credit worthy or not, which is kind of the old school. They're dabbling and getting into this whole, all this other data, and they have all this really sensitive, personally identifiable information, which also includes your address and your phone number and, and your kids and your sisters and your social security number and your whole family all wrapped into that. And so this stuff is out there. How many, how many records? Uh, 143 million people were affected. So that's like pretty much half the adults in the, in the country were affected by this. And, and it just shows, I mean, their, their lack of respect for the data and for our privacy, the lack of respect for security, and then the way they handled the breach. They just, so let's, before we move on to that, let's talk about, let's, because um, I think that that's pretty significant. So the, um, this is not the largest breach, even in recent history. The, Ute, the, the Yahoo breach from last year had like a bill, affected like a billion people. But what was affected was um, usernames. Um, and so oftentimes um, when, this, when breaches happen, um, not, a, not a lot of data gets out there. But what makes this breach, particular breach, so devastating is that for each of those 143 million people, the amount of data that was stolen was 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 sizable. So name, social security number, birth date, address, driver's license number, credit card numbers from another 200,000 people and dispute documents for another 180,000 people. So, if you think about just the the name Social security number is address, driver's license, birth date. Those are really the key pieces of information that someone needs in order to be able to open up an account in your name uh, and to do any number of sort of 
fraudulent activities within around your ID, uh, your identity. And you, you can't change those. I mean, you could move, I suppose, but you can't, you can't change your social security number. Um, social security numbers are a really, uh, weak password, if you will, that unlocks, um, that unlocks people's financial, um, identity. Um, so what was taken was, was, was massive. And, but then, like you said, what, what, what Equifax did as a follow-up is just a series of sort of almost, I mean, like almost sort of contemptuous in the ways in which they really don't seem to care about what happens. So the first thing is that they set up a website, a separate website of a separate domain. And like rule number one for if you teach people how to protect themselves against phishing scams is <laughs> never enter your personal information. Like if PayPal asks for your personal information in an email, for example, you don't click on the link. You go directly to paypal.com and enter your information in there. So having this other website that was not even registered to Experian was like a huge red flag. And then people were asked to submit the last six digits of their social security number and their last name. And it looked to be completely random whether or not, it, so for me it was asking people to hand over personal information on a very sketchy site. Um, the and that was like a like a WordPress. It was like a WordPress install. It wasn't it had no sort of extra security. Like literally, someone like threw this up when the news broke without any like any kind of troubleshooting or or security. Um, you were supposed to give your six digits of your social security number and your last name, but it was really random what it was what the response was. It doesn't actually seem to accurately reveal whether or not you were one of those 143 million people. People were typing in like test and one, two, three, four, five, six. And it said, unfortunate, you know, it would say, unfortunately, it looks like you're part of the hack. And then if it said, unfortunately, it looks like you're part of the hack, it asked you to sign up for its trust ID service. And in clicking agree to that, this new one year credit reporting service, which does nothing, by the way, credit reporting does nothing. Um, you were signing up to binding our binding arbitration that you wouldn't sue them. Which is classic. I mean, terms you know, terms of service, sleight of hand. And then if you called, because what you're supposed to do, um, and again, you and I are waiting, waiting to get an apartment, so we're very much aware of people running a credit check on you. What you're supposed to do is you're supposed to call all three of the credit reporting agencies and put a freeze on your credit so that new accounts can't be opened without you giving a PIN number, right? So when you would call Experian and get and freeze your credit, they would give you a PIN number, and the PIN number corresponded to the year, the month, the date, and the timestamp. So you could pretty much guarantee that every, a lot of people had 20170908 one, four, two, three as their PIN number. 
And again, it, programmatically, it would be so easy to crack. I mean, so easy to write a script to crack the PIN number of, a, of people's credit now because you know that if people were, that a good number of people who were paying attention to the news called Experian on Friday and froze their credit. So you just have to run the four-digit timestamp to be able to unlock people's credit. I mean, the, the lack of sophistication in how they deal with this, the, the lack of, re- clearly the lack of respect for, for our privacy and our data. And, you we're know, the product. We're not even, like, we aren't actually their yeah, customer. The, yeah, they just, they had a product, um, you know, leak. And oops, you know, but when you think about the credit score, I mean, in this particular, I mean, with Facebook, yes, we, we're fucking up. Oh, man, I did it. We're screwing up democracy and and we're doing a lot. But with with this, this is like, um, I mean, we're, we're being treated like cattle in how we're doing this. And I had a good thought and I lost it. But I'll well, I mean, I, I, I would I would put the Facebook thing. I mean, I think both of these, it's hard to say which is worse. I mean, I think screwing up democracy is pretty heavy. But I think the thing that happens for individuals who have their credit, who have their credit stolen is, I mean, it's, if nothing else, it's a, it's a huge pain in the ass and a little ding on your credit, right? Being, missing a payment, uh, missing, being late for a payment, right? Uh, I defaulted on my student loan briefly. I mean, that ruined my credit. So, that's I mean, what, and, you know, I, I say, and sure. so these are things that actually stop you from being able to buy a house. Or if you looked, if you want to buy something that requires credit, you pay a lot higher interest rate. Um, it makes it difficult to get a credit card. Um, these are things that, again, you know, these are things that play out and and hurt poor people much more than they hurt wealthy people. And so uh, it 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 does ruin, or at least wreck, maybe not ruin, but it certainly wrecks people's lives to have their credit. To have credit that's not "quote unquote" good credit, and uh, you know, here's a, here's a company who's supposedly responsible for telling other businesses whether or not you have good credit, and and they they've actually increased the risk that you that you won't. And they again, we're not their customers. the The customers are the banks and the credit cards who pay Experian. Right, in order to say whether or not we're credit worthy, we're the we're the our credit score, our personal data is the product that they sell other people. You can't opt out of Experian, or you can't call and say, you know, like you can like be unlisted in the phone book, or you know, or choose to not have a Facebook account. Like you can't actually not have a credit score. Well, and that's what I was going to say is there's just zero accountability for these None. folks and, and what not, they I mean, do. Whether and they're going to pay and, a fine? Yeah, yeah, and they'll and they'll keep moving on. They'll keep brokering their data. Right off. Yeah, so it's like I mean, this is this is not just one situation. This is the standard way of doing business today. Is you know treating us like you know we're cattle and we're basically you know are their product and we can be bought and sold to whoever. And they have zero lack of, of you know professionalism when it comes to security, privacy, or or handling of that. And there's just no accountability. If, you know whether you're you're wrecking someone's personal life or whether you're you're crashing the democracy. And 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 what's really scary is the technologists who are building these platforms have 
keep doubling down on it. You know, I saw people after this saying, hey, you know what we should do is we need to get all of this in the blockchain, said the people who have had breaches, I think, pretty much every week when it comes to Ethereum or block, you know, some sort of blockchain related product. They're having breach after breach, but these people can't even see that. And they're actually actively suggesting that we use that to replace this. So we're doubling down on technology where nobody is learning from this. And that's really the scariest part of all of this. Well, and I think that, you know, to tie it back to, to tie it back to social media and to tie it back to Facebook, one of, if it's not blockchain, one of the other things that we're going to be told about in the future, our credit worthiness will be scored based on social media, right? So this is already um, something that's happening in China, right? And so, you know, thinking about the ways in which, as you said, like all of these companies are really interested in creating, um, gathering as much data as they can about us. And I think it's, you know, whenever our data is accumulated, whenever people track data, store data, try to accumulate data, want to analyze data, it's a risk, right? It's a security risk. Um, and, uh, you know, we, I, I feel I had one of those horrible Cassandra moments, um, this week when Trump announced that he was going to, or Trump announced, Trump set Jeff Sessions to announce he was um, rescinding DACA, is that 800,000 young people trusted the U.S. federal government with their personal data, right? Who they were, where they lived, their address, the names of their family, where they worked, where they went to school. They gave the government this data believing that they were going to, in exchange for that, be safe. Right, and we found that that's not that that promise has been broken, and furthermore, that ICE has announced that it absolutely will be using that data to identify to identify and perhaps deport deport these people. And so, I mean, this is the these are the very real consequences of of the collection of data, and I think that we are really going to be faced with what does it mean to be both willingly and unwillingly having our lives handed over in ways that are making us unsafe, right? Whether it's a question of, on the big scale, like democracy, or on a financial scale with the credit score and credit tracking, or on this other, you know, geopolitical um, and really fucking humanitarian level, right, um, of something like DACA, and um, you know, for both of both of our worlds, with both the ways in which APIs have play, play a role in this, and the way in which education is increasingly obsessed with tracking as much data as it can about students. I mean, these are these are huge, huge, huge ethical issues that um, we have to again we have to we have to think about. We have to think a lot more critically about what we're doing and what we're building. Yeah, I I mean. It's not anything new for us. I, I'm, I'm happy to hear some people seem to be waking up to this, but I don't feel like it's anywhere enough, enough conversation. Hopefully, I, I just feel like these breaches are going to be just like the hurricanes and just like the forest fires. It's going to be lots of them. I mean, until, until we rethink our, until we fundamentally rethink our policies around technology and our policies around data. Yeah, I mean...
Alrighty. Until, Until next, next time. Week.